0: Amen, good singing indeed. Take your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter number 7 this morning. I told the Wednesday night crowd that uh, last Sunday morning, about this time, I started not feeling great, realized that it was too late to shuffle the deck for Sunday night preaching, so I preached on Sunday night, and then Monday and Tuesday I was home sick, Sick, sick. I rarely miss time in the office, but I was sick, and Jessica ordered me to stay home. And when the boss orders you to stay home, you obey. I was feeling better and tested negative for the dreaded Rona, and so I decided to come in uh, to the office for a wee bit on Wednesday morning, preach Wednesday night. And I have felt great, but oddly enough, I feel fine, so don't worry, but uh, this morning I kind of went... Not hearing in my left ear. So if I get loud, I'm saying all that to say, if I get really loud, it's because there's still drainage that's going on, uh, and I can't hear you. So if you amen over here, great, good for you. Over here, it's a little bit more sensitive. I can really hear your amens, and otherwise, I hope you can hear me this morning. So take your Bibles, Joshua chapter number seven, tis the season of sickness, right? Uh, It comes upon all of us. Joshua chapter number 7 is where we are this morning. We're going to read the first 13 verses. We're going to look at chapters 7 and 8 together. We've seen victory um, over the flesh. We've seen last week victory through faith in the life of Joshua. Today we're going to look at victory beyond failure. We're going to read of the only known defeat in the conquest of the promised land, and it comes here in Joshua chapter number 7. The Bible says this beginning in verse number 1. But the, but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Haven, on the east side of Bethel. And spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and and smite Ai. And make not all the people to go labor thither, for there are but a few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote. Of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, notice this next section in Joshua's reply. And Joshua rent his clothes fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord What shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ, or encircle us round, and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get up. Now he says, Get thee up. But you can kind of sense that God is saying to Joshua, listen, bud. Let's get the facts straight here. Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Why are you doing this? Israel hath sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore... The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore. Whew, that's tough. That's in direct opposition as what he told him in Joshua 1 and verse 5. He says, I, neither will I be with thee anymore except ye destroy the accursed from among you up, this is the second time he told me to get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourself against tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. Let's open in a word of prayer and we'll look at the steps to victory beyond even failures like this one. Father, help us, I pray, as we come to the Word of God. As we sit here in your presence, as we have before us your Holy Word, I pray that there would not be one who is taken in sinful failure today. If there is one in our midst, I pray today would be the day they forsake the accursed thing. Today would be the day they turn away from the sinfulness that calls them to fall flat every time. May they get up. May they sanctify themselves. Help us, I pray, Lord, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. The journey to Jericho is the model for victory through faith. That's what we studied last Sunday. Joshua answered the call to faith. He consecrated himself by faith, and ultimately, he conquered the city in faith. It is usually after great success in our spiritual life that failure lurks. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 24, A just man falleth seven times, yet riseth up again. The number seven in the Bible speaks to completion. In other words, you may have utter and complete failures in your life because of sin, but you can get back up. Wicked men stay in their failures. Weak men dream of rising, but never actually do what is necessary to overcome the failure. What I want us to see this morning is from the life of Joshua. When failure is a part of our life, how do we overcome it? What are the steps to victory? The lesson on Achan and Ai for the life of Joshua is exercise your faith and get up. Sanctify yourselves. Just as we examine Joshua's victory through faith leading to Jericho... This morning we will study his pathway to victory beyond the failure that was Ai. So let's dive right into the lesson this morning from the Word of God and begin by studying our sinful failure in verse number 1. Achan's sin is stated so matter-of-factly that it takes us off guard. We could read chapter 6 by saying victory, winning, success, And then chapter 7 and verse 1. Oh, wait, what? Sin? Where'd that come from? And that's really how I always read chapter 7 and verse 1. Everything is sunshine and roses. Until somebody decides that they're not going to obey God anymore. May I suggest to you, that's all of us this morning. There's not a one of us in this place that has never come to a point in their life where they have chosen to sin and thus failed of the grace of God. Thankfully, His grace doesn't fail us. But in the story of Achan... It is a difficult lesson that is learned. Thankfully, we're not studying Achan alone. We're studying Joshua, but we must touch on Achan and his sin for it affects Joshua. Far too often, this idea of victory, winning, success is the case for most Christians. We're on the mountaintop and then we fall flat on our face because we trust in the arm of our own flesh. I'm going to use an illustration this morning of a nearly current leader within Christendom. He's one of my favorite authors, a man that I have read after for many years and believe has done great good for the cause of Christ. He recently passed away and went on to heaven. The man's name is Ravi Zacharias. How many know that name? Wonderful author, wonderful student of the Word of God, wonderful teacher of truth. Through writing. I don't know all the details of his failures, simply to say, many details came out after his death of sins that he had committed. His sin and failure hurt his own reputation and did great damage to the cause of Christ. But all of us can find across Christendom good men who fail. We also, if we're careful, can look around in our own congregation at times or in the circles of Christians that we know and find little known men and women who also fail. For Dr. Zacharias, the failure does not discount the good things that he did, nor does it make untrue the biblical things that he wrote. It's just unfortunate that his sin was a failure that was marked at the end of his life. But so it is for us. Every failure that we engage in, every sin that we engage in, every choice that we make that departs from Almighty God, it stains our name and it harms the holy and glorious name of God Almighty. That's what Joshua is complaining about here. He's saying to God, what has happened? Your name is glorious. And God says, yes, it is. But the problem isn't with me. The problem is with you. And so we study briefly then this morning, this man Achan. When we watch what we shouldn't watch, when we talk as we shouldn't talk, when we engage in activities that we should not engage in, we too are guilty of sinful failures, like Achan and every other person that names the name of Christ who is chosen to depart From following after him. We make the choice to sin. And more times than not, our choice to sin is on the heels of or in the height of a spiritual victory or success. This is the story of Achan. He is a member of the congregation of Israel. They had just won a victory, so everyone needed to be mindful because that's when the devil... The world and our flesh waits just around the corner to destroy us. His sinful failure began, letter A, with lust. You have to look later in the chapter, in chapter 7, to discover his sin and find out what he took. All he tells us in the retelling of the story, Joshua, in verse number 1, is that, Israel was, uh, was, uh, was defeated because they had trespassed. That's the word that is used in verse 1. Because they had taken of the accursed thing. Imagine a 60 or 50,000 manned army of soldiers entering into a city, Jericho, bent on killing everyone in the city except for Rahab's family. There were a lot of cursed things lying around. So the picture of them as a group entering into Jericho is a picture of you and I going out into a world that is condemned already. There are a lot of accursed things that lie around everywhere for you to put your hand on and take. The lesson should not be lost on us that in taking from the accursed city, there were hosts of Israelites who were going going in and each of them could have fallen just like Achan did. Thankfully, they didn't, but Achan did. Our spiritual life then is no different than their entry into Jericho. There are curses all around that if you take and act upon in your Christian life, you will kill the Spirit's influence in your life. It is a failure. It's all driven by our lust. Sin always begins with lust. James says this in James 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And the implication is, neither tempteth he any man with evil. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Achan could have very easily said, look, God shouldn't have left all these nice things lying around. Isn't that what most Christians do today? I mean, what does God expect me to do? I mean, have you seen all the things that are around there? I mean, this sin, this thing, this looks really pleasant. I I think I should get involved in that. You would be no different than Achan entering into Jericho, that condemned city, and taking that which is accursed by Almighty God. This wasn't God's fault. It was Achan's fault. He might have said, hey, look, there's so much good stuff here. What am I supposed to do? And the answer is, don't touch it. Avoid the temptation. I don't know how I can avoid the temptation... God gives us a way to avoid the temptation. Paul writing to the Corinthians said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You can say no to lust. Filled temptation. Whatever that temptation is, you can say no to it. Achan, of all of the tribes of Israel, of all of the households of Israel, of all of the families that are in those households, of all of the individuals that made up those households, Achan and his house were the only ones that took of the accursed thing. If there's that many people that can say no, you can too. Sinful failure begins with lust but it continues as a lie. What does the Bible tell us? And again, we've not read down past that point, only to the failure in verse 13. I'm saving verses 14 and following for point number three this morning, but simply to say this, as he took it, as he coveted, as he lusted and acted upon it, he concealed it. He hid it. The thinking of Achan at this time was, No one's ever going to catch me in this. May I suggest to you, when your flesh lies to you, that no one will ever catch you in this, remind your flesh that you will always be caught in this. God is the great God of heaven, and if you are one of his own, he will both chasten and scourge you, the book of Hebrews tells us. I often wonder how Achan left the city. Do you? Did he throw the robe on like he wore that into the fight that day? We read these stories and we're like, yeah, that was the story of Achan. Put yourself in the story of Achan. How did he do it? I mean, he had this jacket off and all of a sudden now he's got this robe and did he say, oh no, it's okay, David. This is what I wore into town today. Yeah, I know you were fighting right next to me the whole time. It's okay. I wore this. This is mine. Really? That's what you wore in? Somebody somewhere in some way knew he was lying. Somebody could smell a rat. We might say, I often wonder this as well. Did he stick the gold and the silver in his pockets? We're going to find out it's 200 shekels of silver. I mean, that's a lot to stick in your pockets. I don't know how many I can stick in my pockets, but I don't think I could put 200 shekels of silver in my coat pockets. Do you? Oh no, that tells me then that this was an ongoing sin problem for him. This is something that he would go back into the city, sneak some more out, go back into the city and sneak some more out. He would go back into the city and sneak some more out. Or he had confederates. By the way, that's what sin will often do. It will rope in more confederates. It will bring more people into the sin with you. Sin loves cohorts. Sin has many friends. When he went in with his sword drawn... Weren't there people beside him? Weren't there others that likely saw him going like this? Hmm, Look at all that silver over there. Hezekiah, have you seen all that silver? I mean, look at it. I mean, it's a lot of silver. I mean, it's just going to sit there. Somebody ought to take that silver. I mean, I was in this one house that was partially collapsed, and there was a wedge of gold, 50 shekels almost in weight. I mean, we ought to probably talk. Somebody ought to really take that. I mean, that could benefit us. Sin always has a process of rationalizing itself as well. Did his family not know when he brought them back these items back and hid them under his tent that these were wrong? By the way, dads, be careful your sinfulness, it will always trickle down to your children. It will always affect them. The answer to all of these is there were certainly others that were aware that Achan was up to something. But no one chose to confront him about it. So he was allowed to continue to lie and conceal his sinfulness. This was ultimately Achan's problem. He coveted and he concealed. But it also was Israel's problem. Make no mistake, when you lie within a congregation for Israel, it affected them. When you lie within a church body, it affects all of us. No one in his family would intervene to stop his destructive, sinful behavior. Yes, he alone was at fault for his sin. But God held the whole congregation at fault for the sin according to verse number 1. Your actions, friend, matter to God and to those that surround you. You living a lie, you living in sin, you continuing to perpetuate a concealment of matters that God is trying to get you to change will not profit you and it will not benefit the body as a whole. Your actions matter. Concealing and lying about your sin will never, will never lead to success with God. Sinful failure for the believer always leads to defeat. But it also leads, number two, to our soul's frustration. Enter Joshua, our man of study this morning. Achan brought the problem, but Joshua's got to figure it out. And so we're treating Israel as a corporate single body in this story. God does. He holds them all culpable for the sin of Achan, and yes, it was and his, and yes, he has to pay for it. Sometimes in our Christian life, our whole life is doing great by God, but there's one little pet sin, and we keep it, and we nurture it, and we feed it, and we tell it it's OK. And we lie to ourselves and to others that might ask about it. And what the story is teaching us is, you can't keep that pet sin anymore. It's got to go. It's failure. Because if you keep that sin hidden in whatever pocket of your life it stays hidden in, your soul is going to sense nothing but frustration before a holy God. That's what Joshua's dealing with here. We see or read in verses 6 through 13 the true frustration of the soul of Joshua. What went wrong? Joshua asks. I thought you told me we'd be victorious, he declares. We find ourselves here often, don't we? Struggling with why God's blessing and His presence and His power isn't in our life. Why was Joshua frustrated? Where did the frustration come from? Well, we have to at least begin by acknowledging this, letter A. The soul's frustration is based in the fact that we know God's promises. If Joshua had not known God's word, if he had not known any of the promises of God, would he have been as frustrated I mean, it would have just been another defeat in battle, or it would have been a loss. But we remember what God told him in chapter 1 and verse 5, don't we? There shall not any man, he says in Joshua 1 and verse 5, be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, he says in that passage, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. That's the promise he had. That's the promise he knew. This was the vexation. That's a great Bible word, isn't it? This is the vexation of his soul. This is what he's laboring through. It's what we labor through. God, why aren't you blessing me? And God is likely saying, like he does to Joshua in just a moment, yeah, go look in your life. I can tell you why you're not being blessed. Don't blame the pastor. Don't blame the church. Don't blame me. God would equally and fairly say, look in your own life. For why God's blessing isn't there. God promised to never fail or forsake us, thought Joshua. What happened? He promised that I would be victorious. Yet our men were killed by this teeny tiny little city AI. They whipped us and they shouldn't have. Joshua is likely struggling at these moments, knowing the promises of God, asking such questions as, can God be trusted at all? Does God even mean what he says? By the way, do these questions sound familiar, believer? Sometimes when we allow sin to stay in our life and God's power and presence is no longer with us and we don't have his blessing, we ask these very same questions. I don't even know if I can trust God. That's what Joshua was lamenting before God. I thought I could trust you. I thought you would work everything out for me. We've all been here. For Joshua, the answer comes quickly back from God. Yes, I can be trusted. But you must take care of the choices and the details of your own life. Essentially what God is saying and putting back on Joshua is, can I trust you? God's blessings are not capricious. That means they don't just come and go as he sees fit. Nor are his promises frail. But his promised blessings are true for those who will obediently walk with him. You cannot live a life like the devil. You cannot live a life filled with sin and then come back to God and say, But I know your promises. Who cares if you know them if you're not going to do them? It is the knowing of the promises that causes conflict and unrest in our souls. The promises aren't the frustration. It is knowing the promises and not realizing or receiving the blessing from them. This is what frustrates our soul. This leaves us with where the frustration actually comes from. It comes from, us, letter B, neglecting our problem. When God thunders back into Joshua's conversation, he says, man, get up. Now, I'm glad God is a lot nicer than me. There are times that I'm probably a little too sharp sometimes in counseling or in conversation or in advice and and things that people come seeking for me. I will say often to people, well, what did God say? Well, what does the book tell you to do? Well, pastor, I just thought you would sit around and listen to me complain a little bit more before you actually told me what to do. Well, the Bible says to do this. God often would come to someone and we can complain to him about things that we are not engaged sinfully in. Like Job, when bad things happen, we can complain to God. But when the bad things that are happening are because of our sin, you can't complain to God. Because God will thunder back by saying, get up, sanctify yourself. What have I done wrong? The answer is nothing. God had not failed them. They had failed themselves. Obviously, this particular sin was not Joshua's sin. The sin, however, was a sin within the camp, thus it was all of theirs. Joshua's problem was not consulting the Lord before going in to fight Ai, as he had done in going up to Jericho. One of the keys to the conquest was to find heaven's captain, we noted last week in our third and final point from Joshua 5 and verse 13. There was here sin in the camp, therefore God was no longer in their midst. Joshua was to command them to not touch the unclean thing. They had taken of the unclean thing and Joshua had fulfilled his command to them. The problem was neglected because Joshua was completely unaware of the danger and the death that was hiding in the camp as they ventured out to conquer Ai. Sometimes in our own spiritual life, we must be alert and aware of problems that we know exist in our lives. And we seek to find hidden problems that we're not aware of presently. Christian, you should never take the posture that, man, everything in my life is just a okay, Ain't a care in the world in my life. Be careful. Every Christian should take care to know that in their life and their walk before God, that there is no known sin between their soul and the Savior. Spiritually, we are always to be on the lookout for problems. Joshua is certainly not cavalier about the issue as we see him referencing his generals. The generals come back to him and say, Boss, it looks like it's clear. It's a small town. shouldn't be a problem. Here we go. He's just simply unaware that God wasn't in their conquest. Boy, that's a problem. And so often we never go to God and ask, should I do this or should I not do this? Is your blessing upon me in this direction? I'm making this decision. Is this what you want me to do? Joshua comes lamenting before God and God says to him, stop complaining and start investigating. Don't doubt God's grace or goodness. If there's an absence of his power, then seek the reason for the void of God's presence in your life. If you are lacking power, if you are lacking a sense of God's presence, may I submit to you, it is because you are neglecting a sin, a problem in your life. Your soul is frustrated because you know God's promise to bless you, but you cannot figure out why. Then start figuring out why. Well, I ask you, Pastor, to figure out why. I don't know the secret hidden sins of your heart. That's between you and God. But you can root out those problems. You can find those issues. Sinful failure will always cause our soul great frustration. Thankfully, we find number three, God has a sovereign fix. We pick up our reading again in verse number 14. The Bible says, In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the households which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he it is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in, folly in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Tsarites, and he brought the family of the Tsarites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man. Now, stop for a second and put yourself in this place. Can you imagine each tribe? I mean, Ephraim's walking by, and all of the families of Ephraim... Man, I'm glad we're clear. Here come the Reubenites. I mean, they're unstable as water, right? That's their fathers. And probably in this tribe, (laughs) not us. Okay, all right, here we go. We're good. Tribe after tribe. We sometimes read the story and we assume, well, man, this must have just gone like that. This probably took days. This probably took a time. They had to get everybody marshaled up. Everybody had to march by. And as they did... God was speaking and directing Joshua as to where this specific problem was. God's fix is very, very intense. It's very detailed. We keep reading. The Bible says, And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Run! Is that what it says? By the way, be sure your sins will find you out, the Bible tells us. The whole time, you know Achan is walking through that line, and it's not comical, but I do have a slight smile on my face. The whole time he's walking through going... And I wonder when it came upon the gaze of Joshua and however it was uh, uh, established by God as to the time for him to pass by. If Achan's brother went by first and Achan went real quickly. (laughs) Is that how you go over your sin? Is that how you conceal yours? I mean, I know he's preaching on this morning, but God, I'm not going to deal with that one pocket. That's the pocket you need to deal with this morning. If you're going to fix the problem by God's sovereign will and by His sovereign work, you're going to have to follow His process. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Now I had a question after the early service about this particular passage. Pastor, do you think this confession by Achan gained him entry and forgiveness into the presence of Almighty God. And my answer is only from the Word of God. I don't see that in the Bible. We could play the what-if game. What if Achan had taken all that stuff one night, and the very next night, before they went to Ai, he went crawling to to Joshua and to the leaders and said, I took this, I shouldn't have taken it. Please, God, forgive me! Then the answer is there could have possibly been mercy. But he's only ratted out because the eyes of Almighty God penetrate through the rat that he is and expose the sin for what it is. He says in verse 21, "...when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent." and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran into the tent and behold it was hidden in his tent and the silver under it and they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zera and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen his asses his sheep his tent and all that he had And they brought them into the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore the name of the place was called the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble unto this day. Indeed this is a difficult passage of scripture. But it is an emphatic and enlightening passage of Scripture. You cannot allow sin to remain in your life. 36 men were dead because of Achan's sin. Those families would never be the same. Thus the severity in dealing with Achan and his whole family is justified by God and by man. He was the reason for the problem. By the way, the whole charade did not have to play out. Achan first could have obeyed God and never taken of the accursed item. Second, he could have very easily said at any point, I'm the reason we're having problems. I'm a sinner. I've taken. What is God's sovereign fix? Well, letter A, it's to root out the sin. The process for finding the sin that was in their midst was a pretty intense scene. It's the same in our own lives. Sometimes sin is pretty obvious to us, right there like the nose on our face. Other times, sin may be like the suspicious mole that crops up on the back of your leg and it takes a friend or a loved one to say, you might need to get that checked out. It is only by taking the mirror of the Word of God and then examining where our issues and problems are that we begin to identify that is a sin, that is a problem. To Achan and his immediate family, the sin was obvious. He should have rejected the temptation, but he didn't. For Joshua, as we've already noted, there were some signals, there were some signs that should have set off some alarm bells in his mind. The fact that God was not leading them, the fact that God had not directed or guided them or communicated to them about the attack on Ai should have been a huge red flag that God's presence wasn't with them anymore. If God is not using his word or his teachers in your life to communicate with you, perhaps you should today do some investigation of sins that may be in your life. When was the last time you felt sure that God was involved in your life? When was the last time you were sure that God was leading your life? The first answer to why God is no longer leading or engaged in your life is because there's a sin that must be dealt with in your life. Joshua's words to Achan are both compassionate and compelling here. My son, give, I pray thee, glory or the due glory to God. Make confession unto him. Tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. Joshua says in verse 19, he says, I'm pleading with you, be honest for once before God and before us. Tell us what you did. Too late, sadly. But to his credit, at least, Achan confesses. Now, if Achan had lived in the New Testament age of grace, could have been his. His words, by the way, are wonderful words of confession. They ought to be what we use. It's why the story is here. Even though he's a terrible character to study and his reputation is horrible to follow, I don't advise it, his confession is the confession that you have to have if you want to make your life right, if you actually want victory, if you want to go beyond the failure in your life. He says this, indeed, I have sinned against who? The Lord God of Israel. Notice, not only does he confess before God in rooting it out and finding what the sin was, he confesses, but he does a full confession. He goes on and says, thus and thus have I done. Can I suggest to you this morning... If in the invitation you come up here and pray, or you kneel at your own seat, or you go home this afternoon and do some work with God about the sinful failures of your own life, that you don't just go, Well, God, I'm a failure. You know it, and I know it, and we all know it. So let's let me get on with it. Can I suggest to you, you'll never move beyond that failure? Now, for Achan, it meant that he was going to be stoned, burned, and buried. Not a pretty sight. It shows to us, secondly, that not only, not only are we to root out the sin, whoop, there it is, we have to remove the sin. we got to remove it. Achan and his family were removed from the camp. His family. His children. Oh, dads. Moms. Be careful the sinful failures we let to persist in our own lives. His possessions, his livestock, even his tent. They burned his tent. I mean, I could have used that tent. It was a pretty nice tent. It was a three-bedroom, (laughs) two-bath. Gone. There could be no vestiges of the sinner that remained except for the memory of what happens to sinners who sin. That's all the heap of stones reminded them of. When you see sin as against God and as destructive to those who are around you, you too will begin to hate sin to the point of wanting it removed from your life. But until you see it like that, you won't. I have no doubt that there were 36 families lined up ready with rocks. There were 36 men who had died because of this joker's sin. So there was at least 36 of them that said, that was my dad. That was my brother. That was my boy. How dare you sin like that? You got to start seeing sin in your own life that way with a true hatred for it. God hates sin. That's his sovereign fix for how you keep messing around with it. Remove it from your life. God's prescribed solution to fix our sinful failures is harsh, but necessary. Failure for us in the New Testament age does not have to be final. I'm reminded of old Thomas Edison and all the failures he had. Recordedly, several thousands of failures before he first successfully created his light bulb. Edison's friend Henry Ford once quipped to him, Failure is the opportunity to begin again Only more intelligently. And I think that's an actually very good principle to apply to this story and the Word of God. It holds up to biblical scrutiny, we might say. Ford's point, the opportunity to act more intelligently means that we are to act scripturally, biblically, to respond in faith. Yes, we failed, and yes, we gave in to our flesh, but buddy, by faith, I can still overcome it. Victory over the flesh, victory through faith, is still what carries us beyond failure in the story of Joshua. Proverbs 24, I mentioned in the opening. Verses 15 and 16 say this. Lay not wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Spoil not his resting place. That's the verse that brings us into verse 16, which says, For a just man falleth seven times. What God is saying is there might be a lot of people in your life. There might be a lot of wickedness in your life. There might be a lot of things that beset your life. And they may trip you up, but don't stay down. Get up. The Christian church is suffering because we've got a lot of Christians laying strewn across the battlefield. You've got to get up and say, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to engage in that anymore. Amen. Achan's sinful failure frustrated Joshua's righteous soul. Yet God in his sovereignty freed the frustration so that we may stand once again sure in our faith. Number four. Oh, we don't have time to study deeply chapter 8, but it's great. Verses 1 through 3 say this: And the Lord said unto Joshua, Oh, now he's talking to him again. Sin's been dealt with. There's sweet communion with God once again. Fear not. Neither be thou dismayed, take all the people of war with thee, arise, go up to Ai, see I have given to thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king, only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take. Oh, if Achan could have just said no, here he could have said yes. Shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves? Lay thee in ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out 30,000 men, 10 times what he had before, of valor, and sent them away by night. We find Joshua's faith was a sure faith. The frustration of his soul now being calmed, he has answers for life from Almighty God. God literally is the solution to all of our life's problems. We find in chapter 8 that Joshua is once again properly focused, letter A. We seem to to find a lack of focus in chapter 7. God here in chapter 8 is again communicating freely with Joshua. He's giving clear instruction as to where to go, what to do, and how to do it. Whenever we fail, the secret is not merely removal of the sin, but to again focus on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your sinful failure. Restored faith looks again to God for direction and guidance. And that's what Joshua is doing. That was what was missing the first time with AI. With a proper focus on the Lord by faith, they made easy work. If you continue to read in chapter 8 down to verse 29, easy work of AI. Literally, in verse 29, it finishes by saying, and they raised the town. Literally, they just wiped it off the face of the map. Not a problem when God's working with you. That's the funny thing, isn't it, about faith? Faith makes us confident to accomplish great things for God. But focused faith makes us dependent upon God to do those things. That's the focus. And the first was like, hey, it's just a little town. No big deal, man. I can cover this. We got it. Not a problem. And all the while they were living in sinful failure. Don't live there, friend. Get properly focused back on Almighty God. Sure faith properly focuses us on the Lord. So that like Joshua let her be, we can be purposefully fervent. One last passage in chapter eight and verse thirty. Joshua takes thirty thousand troops, obeys God's strategic plan, and completely defeats Ai. When the battle was over, Joshua gathers Israel to reset their obedience. I would argue they're passionate and purposeful. Their fervent obedience to God in worship. And by the way, it is very important that he does this. Here's what the Bible says in verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is between is a twin mountain of Mount Gerizim. He's gonna say that in just a minute. And the city of Shechem is right between it in the valley. And Shechem was a place that Jacob went to, was a place that Abraham went to. It was a place where worship of God happened. It was a holy and high place. It was a place revered by Israel. And Joshua says, we've just won. We've, become, we've overcome our failure. Let's go to a place where we know God God is. Verse 31, as Moses the servant of the Lord commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones. Now they were following God's word very precisely, over which no man hath lift up any iron. And they offered thereupon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote thereupon the stones A copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. Joshua is literally rewriting or copying, transcribing the Ten Commandments. This is the law of Moses that was transportable, that would be there in their worship. Verse 33, and all Israel and their elders and officers their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priest of the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger, those who had attached themselves to these Israelites, as he that was born among them, half of them over against the Mount Gerizim, half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he, Joshua, did what? Read all. The words of the law. The blessing and the cursing according to all that is written in the book of law. By the way, why is Joshua doing this? Because they had forgotten the cursing. They were only focused on the blessing. Look, if you disobey God, judgment comes. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel. With women and little ones, strangers, they were conversant among them. Joshua takes them to Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, a place of reverence. From as far back as Abraham's initial entry into Canaan, here Joshua meticulously follows the law in building the altar in the prescribed way. Then he methodically reads the law. Every chapter to the people. Do you know how many that is, by the way? It's 187 chapters of the Bible. The next time you think I preach long, (laughs) I'm just going to tell you I'm ready to read 187. Are you The point is, when you've been defeated, you cannot fix the problem. God must intervene, revealing the sin to you, so that you may then act to remove the sin from you. Then and only then can you, with intent, properly, fervently, worship God again. This was a public confession and a consecration. He literally reads about the blessings and the cursings and they're written for us so that we would understand this is what victory looks like after we have failed. A remembrance. A reminder. By the way, were they successful in never sinning or failing again? No, just read chapter 9. The defeat at Ai gives way to the distraction of the Gibeonites. Joshua doesn't lose a battle in chapter 9, but he sets up an enemy in their midst that will continue well into King Saul's reign, and well into David's day. Because if you read chapter 9 very carefully, they didn't seek the Lord again. Oh, there seems to be a pattern in sinful favor, people not seeking the Lord. In closing this morning, Joshua was defeated. This is the only time that we read of it. This is his only defeat. Sinful failure of lust and lies caused his soul to be in frustration over what he knew was true of the promises of God but had neglected in his own life and the life of his people the problem that was their sin. God's sovereign fix is to root out and remove sin from your life. The problem. It is then and only then that you can once again live within a sure faith. A faith that is properly focused and purposely fervent in serving the Lord. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.